Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and welcome to the Autism Science Foundation podcast, Sprinkling of Great Science at the International Society of Autism Research Edition. This past week was the International Society of Autism Research, or INSAR, in Rotterdam, Netherlands. Last year and years before, it had been called IMFAR, or the International Meeting for Autism Research, but it's basically the same thing, they just changed the names. Editorials on Spectrum News and Psychology Today praise this year's meeting for having, quote, research which increasingly reflects the issues faced by autistic people of all ages. It now focuses on quality of life and support needs rather than solely on causes of autism, infant studies, and mouse models. Well, I, for one, thought that the meeting was a little bit disproportionate this year, and I missed those infant studies and mouse models. Those infant studies have helped identify the core symptoms of autism, which has led to better and refined diagnoses. Those mouse models are the basis for better interventions. They've helped scientists understand not just what causes autism, but what doesn't cause autism, so that people with autism can better understand themselves. Frankly, I think the meeting was lacking without them, and I hope INSAR makes attempts to fill them back in 2019. There needs to be a balance. The idea that some of the important findings in genetics, neurobiology, and neurology, among other things, are less important to those with more immediate translational opportunities as well, preposterous. There needs to be a proportionate representation of some of the major frontiers of neuroscience. There were a lot of new accomplishments in different areas of science that were not represented this year, and they need to be. For example, that first day's keynote by Jerry Dawson pretty much laid out why those infant studies are vital and important. She pointed out major discoveries which has led to an entire paradigm shift in the way researchers think about autism. Instead of something inherently wrong caused by an external factor, scientists now know that early emerging symptoms of autism influence the development of brain circuitry. It isn't something that happens that sets off a different trajectory of function or dysfunction. It's bidirectional. Poor attention to social cues early in life help feed this altered circuitry. She pointed out different studies which have identified specific brainwave patterns in autism. These brainwave patterns are now the focus of interventions with potentially lifelong impacts. And, those, and that things like, and like comorbidities like ADHD may further disrupt this circuitry. Interventions which save money for society so those funds can go into services have been developed. Because of those studies in infants, the comorbidities of ADHD are better understood and can be helped. Through infant research, the shift from diagnose to treat to promote a different trajectory has been made. Yes, because of those nonsense infant studies that took away from all of what people thought was impactful research. There's more there, but I think I've made my point. Not some of science is important. It's all important. But one of the projects of what someone else called underexamined that was highlighted this year was one that I was involved in, and I really want to tell you about it. That was the employment policy brief funded in part by the society. INSAR ponied up a little bit of money to look at this issue from a policy perspective, and Autism Science Foundation was very proud to be a part of it. But we were just as honored to be part of the discoveries in early detection, intervention, screening, and gene-environment interactions that I will mention. Of course, when we say involved in, sometimes ASF puts two people together, sometimes they fund research, sometimes we provide some more creative assistance, and sometimes we help fund a meeting. 
Anyway, on to the employment policy brief, because I've been talking about this policy brief for a while, and I know I've begged you to fill a survey on it, and now I can finally talk about it since the findings are now like cats out of the bag. The policy brief is not finished yet, but it will be written in part based on the findings of the scoping review, the survey, and the analyses of what stakeholders at these community meetings we held said. There was a lot about employment at this meeting, so I'll try and lump it all together. So first, the scoping review. Curtin University in Australia took the lead in identifying literature on factors influencing employment in people with autism. Thousands of articles were screened, but finally, 117 based on certain criteria, which you can read about in the scoping review, was presented. Some of the factors had to do with general outcome, and some of the factors were identified because of interventions for people with autism. I'll get to interventions more in a minute. What the authors did is link these different factors to the ICF, or the International Classification of Functioning. This is a scheme that the World Health Organization uses to identify strengths and weaknesses and challenges rather than talking about ability or disability. It's taking a specific factor and then categorizing it to a schema. It does take a bit of time and a whole lot of training, but it's then able to organize things in terms of whether something is related to a body function, a cognitive ability, an emotion, the environment, or say personality without saying if it's a negative or a positive factor. So in other words, intellectual ability and intellectual disability both full under cognition without it actually being an ability or a disability. I can probably spend a whole podcast talking about the ICF, which I'd never do. I'd actually ask my colleague Sven Bolte, who helped write it, to explain it. If you're interested in learning more about ICF, email me and I will make that happen. This scoping review, presented by Ben Milborn at Curtin University, found that one-fourth of the employment studies were intervention-based. And of these intervention studies, they were almost always focused on intervening on the symptoms of ASD. Nobody is looking at the environment as the target of intervention. In other words, does video modeling do what it needs to do? Does having a peer help in managing a job? They almost always target the symptoms of autism or the disability, And it points out that that looking at other factors are needed. It may help with a more individualized focus approach. There's also a lack of a gold standard on what an employment outcome is. Is it getting a job? Is it maintaining a job? Is it quality of life? It's all been looked at, but not as well or as intensely as it should be. It also calls for a strengths-based model, which is focusing on finding jobs that pull the strengths of having autism, like attention to detail. I want to say that not everyone with autism, of course, has attention to detail, but future projects are very much needed to focus on those with intellectual disabilities. As Julie Taylor put it when I saw her, with employment, every time you think you've answered a question, you've really just scratched the surface. So part of what this project did was the survey. You guys remember. I probably overwhelmed you with emails, posts, and pretty much me begging about you guys filling out the survey. In the end, over 200 people with autism across three countries filled it out. Matt Lerner from Stony Brook described what people with autism said. 22% are employed full-time, which is a little higher than what other surveys show, but it's still terrible. People with autism across the world felt that education and understanding of autism is important. And this wasn't just a blanket training to everyone in in an employment situation, but more of a focus on social issues for a few key people working with people with autism in the work environment. 
Also, people with autism stressed learning about the job with like a one to two week internship was critical to see if it was a good match. They also felt that job matching motivates work participation and a single person to go to if there was a question would be helpful. They need to feel that things like being alone at lunch is okay and that managers need to be accessible. An interesting finding from the U.S. is that working on a regular basis actually decreases life satisfaction in people with autism. Now, first, I think that people with autism who have a job are the same as everyone. Some of us live to work and some of us work to live. So this may actually reflect workplace experiences. Now, what do employers think? Well, employers do want to learn more about ASD. I'll get to this more at the end. And they agree that that job matching is important. They appreciate the disclosure of an autism diagnosis. It helps them. They agree that focusing on strengths and having a modified workplace is important. Those strengths were things like being loyal, reliable, and having skill niches. In other words, here's the takeaways. It's not just about getting a job. It's matching the right job to the right person, something everyone should hope for. There needs to be more focus on modifying the environment to improve outcomes, and that the outcomes need to be employment, and the environment should be a focus, not the features or symptoms of autism. Individuals need support at the workplace. So what can be done? Well, Other researchers at Curtin University used examples of employment interventions. One was a toolkit which included an education about ASD, a checklist, a workplace modification recommendations, and a set of resources. A randomized clinical trial said that it did increase employer self-efficacy, but it also depended on whether or not someone used the kit. Well, that's not surprising. This is sometimes how all interventions work. There's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. And what about identifying strengths so they could be matched to the right job? Well, someone used the ICF framework to map out these strengths better. They mapped to things like temperament, IQ being high IQ, attention to detail, which I mentioned earlier is not a universal factor of people with autism, memory, and perceptual thinking. Now, here's the thing. I know lots of people with autism have terrible memories, Those perceptual categories may be things like taste acuity, which can help someone in the workplace, but they also might be hypersensitive to sound, which may be harmful in the workplace. The ICF is a framework. Not everyone is gifted, but it can capture individual strengths. So how can this strength-based approach be used? Well, another review from Sonia Girdler at Curtin University. Are you noticing a theme here? There's lots of things from Curtin University in Australia on this topic. Identified these things incorporating special interests and activities like video gaming. As we learned by one presentation, people with autism tend to love video gaming, and that presentation showed maybe it could be a bit too much. Peers are important, and so are visual supports, collaboration with families, and most importantly, identifying shared interests. These things increase interpersonal interactions in the workplace, increase motivation and attention, and helps learning and applying knowledge again in employment settings. In addition to things like employment, new technologies were highlighted. This included everything to wearable sensors to detect the presence or absence of good sleep and how that affects behavior, skin conductance sensors to predict seizures, actigraphy to monitor activity during those seizures. Now, these things are immediately translational, but without the bioinformatics sciences behind them that demonstrated their feasibility, scientists would never have gotten to the point they are now to use in autism. 
And hold on, you didn't hear me wrong. There is research that used something like a Fitbit to measure skin conductance, and that might help identify when a seizure might be coming on. And also, it marks when someone is feeling uncomfortable in a social situation. Also, ways to include people who wouldn't normally participate in research to participate were discussed in a special interest group. That's because some people with autism can't lie still or can't even feel comfortable lying down. Machines to look at a structure of the brain are loud, they're cold, and let's face it, they're boring and scary. Different researchers shared their ideas on how to tackle this issue. And also, robots were big, meaning a big topic, but they're still little robots. The robots were used to help deliver interventions. In fact, researchers in China found that unlike human faces, people with autism didn't avoid the face of a robot. So they're more likely to interact with the robot and even interpret the intention of a robot, which is not necessarily the case with human expressions. They end up spending more time with a robot and less time with a human facilitator in some studies. So yes, they're engaged, which increases their performance, but an editorial by someone with autism hinted that this might be unethical because you're actually encouraging someone to continue to avoid social situations, favoring interacting with a robot. In a study that wound up being highly published at this meeting, a robot added to the efficacy of something called pivotal response training, which is a behavioral intervention. This was found more by parent measures than independent clinical measures, suggesting that it might be driven by a placebo effect, but I am inclined to believe that if other studies showed that people with autism are better able to interact socially with a robot, that it probably does work. The children learned with a robot and then practiced with their parents. The kids loved the robot, the parents loved the robot, and it didn't really seem to hurt, so I hope that robots get used more in different studies. There was also a special advocacy group one morning called Research Partnerships with Patient Advocacy Groups, which was the next stage of one last year. Patient advocacy groups could be autism organizations, but mostly they include groups of families where there's a known genetic mutation that causes autism. This is like Fragile X Syndrome, Phelan McDermott Syndrome, SCN2A Foundation, Rett Syndrome, and there are others and likely to be even more. I get contacted a lot by parents who just discovered a genetic finding in their child with autism and want to connect with other families, collect information, and fund research. This special interest group provided an opportunity for researchers to identify ways that they could work collaboratively with these organizations, the families, the parents, and those that have the syndrome. Most of these organizations already have family meetings, But getting science information in a a digestible way is a challenge. I think it's a challenge for everyone in autism. There is so much information out there, and it's hard to weed through it all. Because this was an international meeting, the participants shared ideas from different countries about how this was handled. I especially liked an idea about how parents are recruited as ambassadors to communicate science. Parents listen to other parents. People with autism listen to other people with autism more than they listen to researchers. Why not work with each other and researchers at the same time? Now, here's another example about how that pesky genetics question is prohibiting research which affects the lives of people with autism. I know, I'm being snarky, and I know that sarcasm is probably not coming across like I want it to in this podcast, so let it be clear. Science does not happen in a vacuum. Scientific research in all areas is important, and more than seeing the research that affects quote-unquote real-life problems of people with autism, this year's INSAR meeting demonstrated that it builds on each other. Don't get me wrong, as a parent, I see science can be slow, 
But as an older parent, I also see how science has really helped people with autism. And remember, yesterday's adult with autism is being replaced with, with what is now called the freshman class of infants with autism who need better services, better help, and more advanced scientific discoveries to help them for the rest of their lives. There was also some updated information on females with autism and at least two oral sessions, but I could only attend one, so I'll give you the rundown. Julie Taylor from Vanderbilt looked at a database of information on adolescents and found that girls and adolescents have more non-disabled friends than boys, at least according to parents and teachers. They also spend more time calling and texting friends. However, if you just looked at the number of peers and the number of interaction and the amount of time spent with friends, they would be the same as boys. So do these subtle differences make them look less impaired by parents and teachers? Francesca Happy in the UK showed that parents of girls, but not boys with the broader autism phenotype, but not autism. Remember, the broader autism phenotype is features of autism that don't quite meet that diagnostic threshold. Anyway, those girls got rated lower in terms of symptoms. So girls with this broader autism phenotype got rated lower in symptoms compared to boys with the broader autism phenotype. The same social impairment, in other words, may look more impairing than in boys. Parents may be under-reporting severity in girls. Who knows? Claire Harrop from UNC is looking at different stimuli, which may elicit different responses. For example, do girls respond to a truck the same way they would a Hello Kitty doll? No, and in fact, there's preliminary data to support this. I'm not going to give this all to you today because as soon as she publishes her latest data, I'm going to trick her into doing a podcast on this topic. Other issues affecting females. The exhausting task of being autistic and trying to hide symptoms to fit in. This is called the camouflaging effect. And it's where women may actively try to hide symptoms to appear more normal. Both men and women do it, but women may be better at it, as, as seen in data by Meng Chuan Lai at University of Toronto. This is where females show higher levels of self-reported autistic traits, but less autistic traits when it was reported from another person. Other potential differences between males and females may be a need a higher load to reach a diagnostic threshold. This was examined by George Washington University, who looked at brain structure over time. In typical kids, the cortex in the brain thickens through adolescence and then thins from puberty to adulthood. This is just the typical process. But in girls with autism, in a certain area of the brain called the superior temporal sulcus, which is involved in social interactions, it's different than boys. Boys have an accelerated thinning of the cortex in this area. It happens faster. Remember, it's a typical process, but it happens faster in boys with autism. Girls with autism show the same brain features as girls without autism in this area. Since it is so crucial for social behavior, are girls quote-unquote protected in some way because they don't have this accelerated decline? And is the absence of a cause actually a protective factor or just one less causal factor? And speaking of girls... Frankly, what I thought was one of the most, if not the most important findings from this year's INSAR was tucked away in a corner of the poster session in the basement of this really confusing convention center, which had terrible signage and nobody could find anything. It was a poster by John Constantino and Natasha Maris's group, which was partially funded by ASF. 
I'm not biased here, but this poster looked at 85 kids, special kids, because they were the nieces and nephews of people with autism. In other words, they were the children of undiagnosed siblings of people with autism. Now, we know that siblings have about a 20% risk of autism. Actually, based on Baby Siblings Research Consortium data, this is maybe even higher for families with more than one child with autism. And also, these siblings, even without autism, have lower adaptive and cognitive function. This was also a new finding from INSAR. So what about the next generation? What happens if you trace not only the siblings with autism, but the children of the siblings with autism? Is the genetic liability for autism passed down even further? As it turns out, yes. About 14% of the children of siblings had autism and 22% had autism or suspected autism that hadn't been formally confirmed. There was a bias in this too with more boys than girls. The takeaway from this is that many siblings of people with autism want to have kids. Of course they do. And they also wonder, do they have a higher risk of having a child with autism? It turns out they do, but of course this doesn't mean they shouldn't have kids. I'm staunchly pro-choice, which means you choose, you, not a research study, but you. It's good to be armed with information, and just like baby siblings, these kids should be tracked early, almost from birth. While there was less on biology, there was some, and there was a whole session on genetics, my favorite kind of genetics, which is genetics with the environment mixed in. Christine Latacosta from Johns Hopkins University looked at prenatal alcohol exposure and prenatal infection and compared it when there were tiny mutations in different genes on chromosomes 15 and 6. Turns out the mutations alone didn't confer a risk for autism, but prenatal infection did a little. However, the mix of these tiny mutations with either alcohol exposure or prenatal infection jumped the risk up almost to four times baseline. This goes to show what I've been saying for a long time. Genes may not confer risk in the absence of environmental factors and vice versa. In this case, what kind of advice do I have? Don't drink when you're pregnant and wash your hands and get vaccinated to avoid getting sick, which is what I would have said before this study, but I think that it's incredibly important that gene environment interactions are being looked at in larger samples. And speaking of vaccination, a study in South Korea showed that incomplete vaccination, meaning missing one of the schedule, increased the risk for autism. The authors, led by epidemiologist Young Shin Kim at UCSF, interpret this as possibly being mediated by inflammation. Don't take it as the final say. But those who want you to go on an alternative schedule or skip vaccines to alter your child's probability of being diagnosed, don't bother. It's not helping, it's hurting. Also, researchers continue to convene before INSAR at a meeting called the Environmental Epidemiology of Autism Research Network, or EARN, which is able to embrace more international partners this year, including a great study called the Generation R study. This is like a mini national children's study, if of course the national children's study wasn't shut down. They discuss collaborations on gene environment interactions and new exposures of interest. By the way, vitamin D exposure was a hot topic this year, but unfortunately the results were mixed. It's it's probable that something is there, but it's moderated by race, ethnicity, religion, and actually geographical location. Some people get more natural sunlight than other people. 
Well, that's my little smattering, and I'm sure I missed something, which is important, so be sure to catch up on the INSAR website, which includes interviews with scientists, even of some of the presentations I missed. Also, there were some interesting findings around brain tissue studies that I'm saving for another time. They include narrowing down these regions where genes interact with each other in the brain, but unfortunately, because of a lack of brain tissue, they aren't really considered conclusive. Now, I took a ton of pictures. I'll try to insert a few in the podcast movie to make it interesting. Otherwise, catch us on Facebook. Talk to you next week.